welcome back to the Cruise Elite Podcast. I'm here with Tony. Tony, what's up? Hey, how's it going? It's a snowy day here on the East Coast, so east down south. It is uh, here too. We've got a lot of snow on the ground and it is very cold today. How cold is it getting up there? We just are getting into a, like a cold snap right now. We had some warm weather, 30-ish degrees is nice and warm. We had that yeah. and I went fishing. Of course. <laughs> I was wondering if those plans held up. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. January 1st. You know, Or terrible. I don't know. Yeah. The season opened. I went out. I've been out like three times, actually, because we had some warm weather, which, again, is 30 degrees. 34 degrees is like too good to be true when you're thinking about winter fly fishing. <laughs> so I got out there. But now it's snapping cold and we're back to, you know, it's probably 10 degrees out right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> so I've got a I've got a buddy um and he was talking about he's working on mobility mm -hmm. and he was telling me about how when it's cold he feels like his body's just less ready, you know, it's not warmed up, right? Yeah. Is that something that you've taken into account in your practice? It it is. So man, I think you just hit on a whole nother episode. Um <laughs> When people tell me that, I think about something that I educate a lot about called interoception. And interoception, I mean, it's a big thing to talk about. There's lots of different ways to look at it. But basically, part of interoception is your body's ability to prepare itself, regardless of how warmed up you are, right? So hmm. we'll have to talk about that at some point, because I often hear when talking to clients and members, sometimes people will tell me no matter what, I just can't seem to get warmed up for exercise. And interesting. Yeah, it, it can be a challenge for people. And really what it means is that your your internal body is not preparing itself fast enough. It's uh, it's an interesting thing to to talk about. We'll have to circle back. Oh, to yeah. It. No, yeah. I have a million questions already. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually one of my more favorite things to discuss, too. All right. All right. Well, uh, we'll look forward to that episode. Yeah. What are we going to be talking about today? So today we're going to talk more about the immediate feedback assessment process. And, you know, we're going to get into some more specifics about it, particularly for folks who are using it now. What sort of things you have to be mindful of to help prevent you from well, number one, going down a rabbit hole that I'm going to talk about, but we're going to talk about misapplication of the assessment process. Hmm. And we're also going to talk some about what is actually happening when your assessment outcomes are changing. Because after somebody experiences using the, the assessment process enough, one of their first questions is always, what is actually happening when my range of motion improves? or what is actually happening when I regress. And I want to make sure that people know what's going on because there's actually instantaneous change happening in the body. If you could remind me, but also the listeners, what is the assessment process in broad strokes? Yeah, great. So we call it the immediate feedback assessment process. And it's really become the cornerstone of what I do as a coach, because it allows me to teach others 
how to assess their response to any exercise that they're doing. So uh, mainly we are using this when there is a very specific goal and that goal could be movement-based. Like if you have a mobility goal, um, that goal could also be resolving pain issues. The point being, if you don't know how your body is responding to the exercises that you're trying, then how can you possibly know what you should do and what you shouldn't do? And having talked to so many people at this point about their prior history with trying to resolve movement problems, the thing that people always say to me is, you know, I did this, I tried that, but I'm not really confident in whether or not those things were helping me because there was really no way to stay engaged with the process and understand how they were responding. Hmm. So I teach this immediate feedback assessment process, which is a way to check in with your nervous system and your brain to see, hey, does your brain like what you're doing or does it dislike what you're doing? And the way that we do that, very simply, especially at the beginning, is through range of motion testing. So an example would be we might check multiple different ranges of motion. Usually at first, I'm teaching people to use like a forward bend. Mm -hmm. Very simple, like, you know, hinge at the hips kind of thing. Bend touch down as if you're going to touch yeah. your toes. Yeah. And, and there's no positional goal with it. It's more of a qualitative assessment. Like, hey, how easy or difficult does this feel? And how far are you going? Do you have any limiting factors that you're aware of when you do the movement? And you might do that three, four times just to kind of warm it up and see where you're at. Take some mental notes. Mm -hmm. Other variations we use are like trunk rotations where you just stand in a neutral stance, you know, feet parallel, meaning like toes pointed forwards. Put your hands together, reach them out in front of you, rotate left, rotate right. Those are very, very typical kind of full body range of motion assessments. And you can honestly use anything. I teach mm -hmm. people movements you can use for your shoulders, for your neck. Um, and then I even have folks try like more functional assessments where you're doing a more typical movement pattern that looks like stuff we might do in the gym, squatting, lunging, overhead squat, stuff like that. So here's how it works. This will be a, a refresher for many people, but for, for folks that are just now starting to learn about it, this is uh, how I want you to visualize it. You would first use a range of motion assessment. So any of the movements that I just discussed to see where you're at. Then you would immediately perform a drill, an exercise. And the idea is you're trying to you know, nail that exercise with high quality, hit the target, and then the goal is to immediately reassess right afterwards. And the assessment right afterwards will either be better, stay the same, or you could potentially get worse. So there's three options. And of course, we're doing the drill for a reason. Maybe we have pain, maybe we have a movement that we're trying to improve, a mobility issue, anything like that. And through using the assessment process and discovering which exercises are helping you with your goal, you can now start to build what we call a high payoff toolbox, where you take all of the exercises that are giving you a good assessment, meaning mm -hmm. 
your forward bend improved or maybe your trunk rotation improved. Maybe you felt like it was easier to do the movement. Maybe you noticed that there was an immediate reduction in the pain that you feel. Mm -hmm. If any of those things happened, those exercises go into the high payoff toolbox. And then we can pull from that toolbox whenever we need those things. If you find that you have regressed, which is absolutely a possibility, we call that a threatening exercise. And all the threatening exercises at first, we generally just move them aside for now. Mm -mm. And maybe we come back to them another time. Because our, our initial goal with what I call the threat reduction phase, if you've been listening at this point, you know, we've talked a lot about the threat bucket. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about the nervous system. And so you're getting comfortable now with the language. And when an exercise regresses you, that falls into the threatening category. And I always tell people, sometimes we come back to work on those things later. And other times, if you've gone through a threat reduction phase where you're practicing all your high payoff exercises, you become a healthier person. And sometimes you circle back to drills that used to be threatening and they're no longer threatening anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of how it works. You know, in a nutshell, you know, we're using that assessment process to simply understand what our in the moment response is to any exercise that we're trying. And we have to have a goal. We have to have a reason for using the assessment process. That's really important to understand as well. Yeah. And to that end, maybe we can come up with an example of, you know, a specific movement issue or a specific pain issue, and then some theoretical, like potentially high payoff exercises be what would some potentially threatening ones be? Yeah. Yeah. So let's just go with back pain, right? I, I've, that just is like, I've been getting a lot of messages lately, especially people reaching out on Instagram saying, Hey, I've got back pain. I don't know what to do. Uh, it's common. And, you know, if you've read any of my stuff or followed along on Instagram or even here with the podcast, you might have even heard me talk about now how back pain is, it's a tricky one because there are so many variables that can go into it. Not everybody has had an injury event who experiences back pain. Sometimes right. we actually just have a threat problem. And because the lower back seems to be a little bit predisposed to pain or sensitivity, you can have different health issues, threat issues, movement problems, and they can manifest as back pain. So that's the first thing to understand with back pain is that there are a lot of factors and possibilities. So mm -hmm. when it comes to the assessment process, here's, here's the big thing to understand. Not everybody responds equally to the same stimulus. So now that I've been assessing for so long with myself, but also I've run assessments on so many others, I definitely have a list of common high payoff exercises for specific issues. Mm -hmm. But when I use that list, I'm not always right. You know, I would say like 70% of the time I can, I can be pretty accurate. And when I'm posting drills, exercises on Instagram, yeah. What you're getting is my 70% list. So like I'll come up with a theme and say, hey, you know, are you experiencing like low back tension? Try this exercise. That's off my 70% list mm -hmm. most of the time. So I have an idea. So for back pain, 
one of the things that I usually have people assess first is actually a breathing exercise called the diaphragm stretch. And I've talked about that in the past here on the podcast. I actually walked people through it in one of my earlier episodes. And basically, that is a mobilization for the diaphragm muscle. Your diaphragm is your main muscle for breathing. And it has a lot to do with posture and has attachment points on the spine and the ribs. And oftentimes, mobilizing the diaphragm can give people some really, really amazing results in terms of back tension. So that is sometimes the first exercise that I guide people into to assess. And the other kind of obvious one for back issues is moving your back, which sounds too obvious. And, and I do recognize that sometimes people are not in a place. If you actually have had like an injury event and you have some issues with your back, perhaps at first moving your back is not the right strategy. But for chronic pain or threat bucket issues, right, where you mm -hmm. have back pain but no injury, it's okay. And you want to move your back. You want to learn how to move it. And so we've got a series of great joint mobility exercises. One of them we call a lumbar front circle. And that is a mobilization for the lumbar spine, which is your lower back. And just learning how to move your lower back and mobilize it to help map it, because a lot of folks don't have good mapping of their right. lower back. Because you hear a lot of, you hear a lot of people saying, hey, if your back hurts, like, don't move. You know, some people will tell me, my doctor told me, like, don't bend down and pick things up. That's dangerous, you know, for where I'm at. I mean, you have to be careful because you don't want, avoidance never is the answer. Yeah, so that movement box we talked about. You got it. You you restrict yourself and then it becomes more limited and it restricts you and yeah. the cycle continues. Yeah, you got it. So as far as like back pain goes, back tension, the diaphragm stretch and the lumbar joint mobilizations that we teach are are usually wonderful options. But remember, this has to do with your nervous system and your brain. And it's not really up to me what your nervous system is going to respond well to. And that's why it's so important to assess because I could try the drill with you that I think is going to solve everything and it might regress you. And that's very important. And I'm okay with that right now because learning what is not helping you is actually just as important as learning what is. Because you start to identify those threats and it helps you understand a little bit more. So even if your response is not the one we're hoping for, it's still valuable information. Okay. So someone has back pain. You prescribe these two different exercises, this diaphragmatic stretch, mm -hmm. this diaphragm stretch, and this lumbar uh Circles? Is that yep. Yeah, we call it a lumbar circle. Yeah. Lumbar circle. So you, you obviously have to teach someone how to do these things, right? And then they're not on their own. But let's say now they're they're by themselves and they're performing these exercises and they're seeing, hey, is the chronic pain decreasing? Is my mobility increasing or the opposite? Or did nothing happen at all? 
right? That's, ex- that's exactly right. Yeah, and you're look you're looking for the answer to those questions. And and really, when you run the assessment process, what you're actually asking your brain is how safe do you feel about what I just did? That's really, you know, that's really the the question. And then the, the other question is, is this potentially useful? So you're trying to answer those questions and the outcome will tell you. And it's either going to be better, same, or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. We didn't talk about that yet. If your assessment outcome is the same, that's that's fine. That's generally okay. But sometimes what needs to happen at that point is you need to get better at hitting the target of the drill. Or there are times when I then try to help people add more complexity to it or load, as we might say. Because when it comes to trying to get your brain to respond to drills, sometimes we need more stimulus, Mm -hmm. especially people who have more of an athletic background or who are very consistent with fitness or they've been you know, exposed to, say, strength training for a long time, their brain might be looking for more load um, before it will actually express a positive change. When you give someone these exercises and you give them these guidelines and these things to look for, I have to imagine that there are times when things don't go as planned. Maybe the client is misunderstanding a part of the process or like you said they're they're not using enough load but they don't know that they're not using enough load what are some common issues that occur when the self assessment process really takes off and they're they're using it on their own without you yeah so you made me think of one of the one of the obstacles that actually people can face early on not everybody but there's definitely a certain kind of person um, that has to get pretty practiced with the assessment process before they can feel confident. Sometimes when I teach this to people, one of the struggles is for people who don't have great body awareness yet. So what I mean by that is they run the movement assessment and they're just not sure. Like, Mm -hmm. did my forward bend improve? Did my trunk rotation improve? I really don't know. And that is real. Like some people just don't have a great awareness yet on checking their movement because maybe they don't have a background in much training. They're relatively new to exercise or they haven't, you know, ever been an athlete before. Mm -hmm. Athletes get really good at the assessment process very quickly because mm-hmm. for years they have been checking in with their body and they've also been learning skills. And anytime you learn skills for a long period of time, you get a good understanding of where your body is in space and you're kind of constantly checking in to see like, hey, am I approaching this correctly with the movement? And so you get a lot of feedback. Yeah. Well, that's like having a really good brain map for your body. That's like having really good proprioception, as we say. So if you're a person that doesn't have great proprioception yet, which means you don't have a good map for your movements, you might be doing the movements and checking in and you're like, eh, I don't really know. I'm not really sure. And that can be a struggle at first. And so at that point, I encourage people to just keep practicing because you will 
now that you're starting to at least ask the question, is this better, same, or worse, you're going to build that proprioceptive map over time. And that increased body awareness will give you more confidence later on. There, uh, there also is a common struggle for people who just don't improve, right? They're doing those movements and no matter what, there's no change. Hmm. And, and sometimes that's the type of person that we need to change the load in some way because they're just not yet getting a response. That is when I teach people so a few simple things to try with the exercises that they're performing. The first thing that I usually have people do is try adding actual resistance to the movement. So if we're just doing, let's take it back to that lumbar front circle joint mobility drill we were talking about. If you're doing that and you're not getting the response, but you are hitting the target, perhaps we need to add resistance. So now we might take a resistance band and we might set you up with like a self-anchored variation that I teach, which now provides you resistance to work against, gives you a lot of feedback actually about your movement quality at the same time, makes you work harder. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is what is needed to increase the novelty of the stimulus that you're providing your brain and nervous system. And then your brain will start to respond and you'll see that response as more positive change in your assessments. So that's one of the first things that I usually do. And then the second thing, and this is a, kind of an interesting one, sometimes by changing the speed of what you're doing, mm -hmm. you can change the assessment outcome pretty quick. And this is something that I use a lot with one-on-one -on -one sessions. Think about, especially with mobility work, think about most mobility work that somebody might practice. Generally speaking, it's all done at a slow speed mm -hmm. because with like exercise, we're always like, hey, you got to move slow. You got to be controlled, right? Mm -hmm. And that is good. Like you want to develop control for sure. However, when you change the speed of what you're doing, you actually start activating a different set of receptors. We talked about receptors in one of the uh, previous episodes as nerve endings that are sensing different types of movement, right? Mm -hmm. It's part of your proprioceptive system. You have lots of different nerve fibers, uh, receptors, as we call them, that sense different kinds of mechanical load. So it could be like torsional force. It could be pressure, right? It could be vibration all these different things that our body is sensing by changing the speed of your exercise. So let's use that same lumbar circle. Now, instead of doing it super slow, let's do it a little faster. And that's an interesting one because that will often change assessment outcomes pretty drastically. And it's usually surprising to people because it's almost like there's an unwritten rule in exercise, like, oh, don't do it fast. That mm -hmm. might not be safe. And, and where I do think that that is a good rule of thumb with some exercise, especially when you're first learning, when you're doing something that has a low risk, like joint mobilizations, yeah, changing the speed can be really, really productive for changing the assessment outcome. 
Yeah, that's really surprising. I, w- I wasn't expecting that. I always think of like, you know, relaxing into a stretch. Right. You know, holding it, then get, getting a little more, no jerky movements, right? Yeah, and it's actually a big part of my movement philosophy too because if you're trying to become better at moving, you're essentially trying to become a better athlete to be a more well-rounded athlete you have to train at multiple different speeds because your strength and mobility is actually very relative to speed, meaning mobility or the mobility that you can express will change based on the speed that you're moving at. And and this is a really important concept for athletes because the mobility you have at a slow speed is not the same mobility that you have at a fast speed. It's completely different. So if you're not if you're not actually training various speeds over time, you're limiting yourself for sure and you haven't yet realized that you don't own the mobility that you think you have. Mm-hmm. Until you start to develop that same mobility at faster speeds and that is really mapping that is all about proprioceptive mapping yeah and i don't know that this is the correct terminology but in my mind it's like the difference between mobility and coordinated movement right yeah yeah those two those two qualities are are so important to put together right if you don't have coordination then yeah, if you don't have coordination, it's that is what's actually most important with mobility. And we we actually uh the fancy word is motor control, right? Okay. When we say when we say motor control, what we're really talking about is coordination. And all the mobility drills that I teach are actually motor control drills before their range of motion drills. So you see me doing all these things like different circular motions, right? For Mm -hmm. all of our different joints. The actual primary goal of that stuff is to improve motor control so that you can have quality coordination versus if you've ever done a different kind of mobility practice where it's like stretching based, Mm -hmm. where the goal is always range of motion. Mm -hmm. That does not have the motor control component. And because you're just maybe getting into a position and you're statically holding it, uh, maybe you're relaxing into it, something like that, Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily training motor control within that range of motion yet. And that's one of the reasons I love joint mobility drills, because improving motor control has enormous benefits. Think about it as the better your motor control is in any given range of motion, the safer your brain feels about moving because your maps are so good. And so that whole process of improving your your joint mobility is really about proprioceptive mapping. Yeah, and it all comes back to safety and, and threat, you know. You got it. If your body feels like it's in control, if your brain feels like you're in control of a range of movement yep. at speed in real life, then it's going to let you do that. At you speed are, yeah, you are life. granted. Yeah. When you, when you make your brain feel safe 
by training all the qualities, right, and, and filling in all the maps, you are granted better movement. You're granted more mobility. You're granted more strength output in those ranges of motion. And that really is to me like what the whole process is when we are putting together like a, a personal practice of joint mobility. To take it a few steps back, um, you were saying, you know, sometimes you might do an exercise and you would see no change. And I guess the question that comes to my mind is, when do you need to adjust the exercise, maybe by adjusting the speed or adding load? And when do you just say, hey, this exercise isn't useful, I need to find a different one? That's a great question. Generally, it's after two tries. So if, okay. you're, if you can be somewhat confident that you've hit the target within two tries and you're still getting a result that is the same, nothing is changing, then I will usually say, okay, now it's time to move on. You can either move on to a different exercise because this one just isn't moving the needle fast enough for us, or you can now explore using those different types of loads that we discussed to see if now you can get a change. If you try one or two of those things and there's still no change, at that point, I'm probably moving on because I know we can find a much better drill for you. But by increasing resistance or changing the speed, honestly, this is an important thing to say too. It's not always about making the exercise harder. Hmm. Understand that when we say load, we're changing the load or the complexity. Sometimes we have to work backwards on that scale because there are times when a person is having such a difficulty with the coordination of an exercise that it starts to cause threat responses. And that might be why you're not getting the change that you want. So in that scenario, and this is surprising to some people, that's when you have to work backwards and start regressing the exercise. And by regressing it, you might actually get a better response. And, and that's for folks that feel like the execution of the drill might be really challenging to them in terms of multitasking, if you want to think about it that way. Because, for example, some of the joint mobility drills, pretty much all of them that I teach people are very challenging at first because they require you to move a part of your body in an isolated manner while stabilizing the rest of your body. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to move my wrist now. It's, okay, can you move your wrist and hit the target, but there shouldn't be movement anywhere else in your body. And that's yeah. actually challenging. You just described the uh, sensation of going through Pilates to me. Oh, really? I, mean, I never thought of it that way, but like Pilates, I feel like it really is like we're going to maintain tension throughout and then just this one micro movement. Little, yeah, something pretty yeah. isolated. That's very uh -huh. hard. Yeah. And, and that is actually a great athletic skill to be able to produce pretty isolated movement with quality with one part of your body. Mm -hmm. While the other part of your body is not only stable, but you are eliminating unwanted movement and staying relaxed, right? That, that is athletic skill. So that's hard yeah. for people. 
And so there are times when we have to regress, we have to work backwards on that scale. And so it's not always about adding the resistance and the speed. Actually, I was just thinking the other day, I had a um, a client on a Zoom call and I was uh, taking her through some some spinal mobility drills and we actually had to regress her with the drill and get her supported by the wall so that she could be balanced so that Mm -hmm. she didn't have to worry about balance at the same time as trying to hit the targets for these other drills. And for her, that was the thing that then started to move the needle for us and get us some immediate results is because now we made her brain feel a little bit more safe about the situation. She didn't have to work on the balance and the stability at the same time. When we say self-assessment, I think of someone doing this in isolation on their own. They've Maybe they've identified some high payoff exercises and they're working on them. But as you said, you know, things can change. Sometimes maybe even just day to day, something that was high payoff yesterday is no longer high payoff. Maybe it's threatening today. How, how do you know, what do you do in that situation? That makes me think of when a person's results are changing, right? Mm-hmm. They're a little bit inconsistent. Something helps you one day and you're excited about that. You're doing it and then it no longer helps you or it even makes you worse later on. So there's uh, there's a couple ways to think about that. Very fundamentally first, what I'm going to say is Sometimes what's happening when a group of exercises is helping you and then you realize through the assessment process that that result is now not happening for you anymore. Sometimes it's because your brain has already adapted to the challenge. And this is something that I experience a lot with athletes who are already very practiced at learning movement. Mm -hmm. Their brain adapts fast because they've been learning movement for most of their life as an athlete. So when that happens, you have to you have to then increase the load again, right? So that you can now continue to offer your brain a novel enough stimulus that that adaptation can still continue. So kind of going back to what we said before, now maybe you have to load your drills with bands or weights. Maybe you have to change the speed or the position. And, you know, sometimes we have to challenge your balance at the same time as doing a certain exercise, right? We're looking for ways to ramp up that novelty. And that usually takes, you know, time. I mean, it's not like I don't generally see somebody adapt so quickly that like in two days, the stimulus is no longer good. I'm talking more about weeks, even months, but that is important to note. And that happens to me all the time. So I might find some good drills for myself. And over the course of a few weeks of practicing those drills, eventually my brain's like, all right, okay, I get it. Like I've done this enough. I've learned, you know, maybe I've marked some improvement. And then rather than saying, all right, I'm going to abandon these exercises, the first question I, ask is what can I do to keep doing this group of exercises, but make it a little bit harder so that I can keep offering my brain the same type of stimulus from the same exercise, but now it's harder. So that's, that's an important thing to hear for people that are finding that the novelty is wearing off, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, um, 
you know, we talked about my knee before, but, you know, one of the things that I found really helpful was using this, this Theragun massage tool on, on some specific places around the knee joint, kind of where the muscles attach to the ligaments, right? Right. And that was really high payoff for me for a while. Mm-hmm. And then it just flipped and mm-hmm. it, it felt like I was just overdoing it and it was actually causing my knee joint to be crankier and more painful. So I just kind of stopped Interesting. using that intervention, right? And, right. And right. focused more on loading the joint in, in a movement like a squat. Yep. So, you know, I had the benefit of, you know, physical therapists and then, you know, talking to you about about stuff. But I'm actually really curious. I, I understand why something may may go from being high payoff to no change. You right. know, it's like now my my body's used to it. It's no longer helping. But why would something go from high payoff to threat? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So this is where the <laughs> this is really what it is to master this craft, if you will, which truly it's nothing you can master, um, <laughs> but in an attempt. So when when a stimulus starts as productive, right? You're getting a result, things feel good, you're moving better, pain goes down, whatever. And then you offer yourself that same stimulus and then eventually it's now regressing you. Now it's become a threatening stimulus. There's a couple of different things that could be happening. So number one, this is more basic. You you need to find the minimal effective dose. Mm. Okay. That is always the goal with any kind of applied stimulus. And that can be challenging because when something helps us, what do we want to do? We want to give ourselves more of that. Mm-hmm. And so using that percussion gun that you talked about, 30 seconds of stimulus is very different from two minutes of stimulus. And so sometimes you have to consider the minimal effective dose and honestly see what you can get away with in terms of how little can you do to still get yourself the same result and try not to just have that mentality of, hey, if 30 seconds helped, well, 20 minutes is going to be awesome, yeah. right? Because it doesn't more, always work that way. More must be better, right? Right, right. It doesn't yeah. always work that way, unfortunately. So, so consider the minimal effective dose. That's one thing. And that's something I'm always coming back to. Now, the other one is a little bit more involved. The other one is more about fuel capacity, right? So literally meaning like your brain having the fuel resources that it needs to continue to offer you the result. This is very important. Maybe one of the most important things that I teach people uh, when it comes to the assessment process and especially folks who are metabolically compromised in some way. But this also can be for very healthy individuals too, because when we improve ourselves in the moment with movement, right? When our range of motion gets better or our pain goes down, like you said, initially when you were using the vibration, your knee was Mm -hmm. feeling better. We don't recognize this, but it takes energy to facilitate that change. Hmm. Because what you're essentially saying to your brain is, hey, brain, do you feel safe about this? 
And if your brain goes, hey, I like it, I feel safe, I like the stimulus, I'm going to grant you more movement options now and less pain, that eats up energy. So if you miss your minimal effective dose and you keep offering yourself something that keeps making you better and better and better, you could run into a fuel deficit problem where your brain eventually goes, hey, I don't want to do this anymore because you keep asking change to occur and I don't have the fuel resources yet to meet that demand. This Now, this is happening to people constantly. Like when people tell you I did all my physical therapy and it was working until it wasn't working, mm-hmm. sometimes this is why. And again, the, the thing to understand is I'm not just talking about people that have known metabolic issues. It is very important for those individuals because it happens very quickly and easily because they might not have the fuel capacities to support the movement intervention very early on. And when I say early, I mean like I've had experiences where one rep of an exercise was excellent for a person and two was not good. Interesting. And we're talking, it can be, it, it can be very like, it's hard to draw the line and figure it out. And, and um, this is again with more compromised individuals, mm-hmm. you know, when somebody has a, a you know, they're maybe a, metabolic concern, diabetic, pre-diabetic, you know, managing an autoimmune disease, you know, we're talking about things like that. But you could also see the same thing happen with a healthy individual who just has some poor lifestyle habits, some nutrition issues, you know, maybe they're not eating frequently enough or the right foods. And that is coming back to kind of, uh, you know, bite them in the rear end when they're doing movement stuff and interventions because they're, they're running out of fuel. Okay, so this is super, super important and it takes it can be frustrating. It can be frustrating because, you know, finding that minimal effective dose is certainly a challenge in some instances. But it's interesting because, well, let me first say I'll back up slightly and say constantly changing results is also a very big indicator of a fuel capacity issue. So your example is a good one where you offer the stimulus, it's good, and Mm -hmm. then maybe you miss the minimal effective dose eventually and now it's not good, okay? Mm -hmm. That's, That's a good example. The other common example is an individual who is getting constantly changing assessments, meaning they find a group of high payoff exercises, those serve them well for a couple days, and then maybe... Now they're all threatening, they're regressing them. Maybe they even feel like they're causing pain now. Mm-hmm. Perhaps some of those drills become high payoff again, and then the cycle continues. That is usually the kind of presentation that you see with somebody that has more of a metabolic challenge. And because their brain does not feel like it has the fuel resource to support the change, the output which when I say output, I mean like the assessment outcome is giving them very mixed findings. And when it comes to pain, one of the things that goes with that too is sometimes pain that floats around the body. Mm. So you might have shoulder pain one day, you know, and then you do something for the shoulder and that feels better. 
and now your shoulder pain turns into hip pain. You do something for the hip that feels a little better. All of a sudden you wake up. Now it's not your hip, it's your neck. These are just really, really common patterns that happen when there's a fuel issue. Believe it or not, one of the most valuable things that I have helped people with when you happen to be that sensitive person, we'll call it, mm-hmm. is to have some form of fuel with you when you are exercising. And that can be amazing because you have fuel for the moment. I cannot tell you how many people have told me it's been life-changing for them. These are one-on-one clients. Life-changing for them just to bring some orange juice with them to the training session. Hmm. That's it. Sip, you're sipping on the orange juice while you're working out, doing your exercises, assess, reassess. And I've seen that help people from being the person that's getting very mixed results, like, hey, that's better. Wow, that's worse. Or, hey, how come that drill that was good a moment ago is no longer good anymore? That same person has some kind of like fast assimilating sugar on Mm -hmm. hand, orange juice, Mm -hmm. anything like that. And all of a sudden, they're more grounded in the session. Their outcomes with the assessments are more consistent. And it's easier to trust the information that you're getting with their assessments. Now, is the mechanic here something along the lines of your brain is assessing, you know, hey, can you perform these actions without causing an issue with survival, right? Right. And if you don't have energy, your brain's like, hey, I don't want you to do any of that. But if you're getting energy in the moment, is it that your brain's saying, okay, energy's coming in. Yep. I think that we can spare some of this to move and do what we need to do in the moment. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and the other thing that we do to kind of, I like to combine it with that idea, is to use breathing exercises in the moment as well. Because the other form of fuel source that we can offer mm-hmm. our body in the moment, and it's the fastest one, is through breathing. And so that kind of ties in. We talked a little bit about breathing in a previous episode, how there's different styles of breathing. And some of them are really great for increasing energy in the moment and increasing essentially your CO2, which will then help you circulate blood, right? It helps get blood to your body. So oftentimes with folks who are complaining of mixed assessments, or floating pain syndrome, as we call it, where the pain is all over the body, I will go into my toolbox and take out air hunger exercises, which if you're not familiar, air hunger training, as we call it, is when you're actually moving, but you are not breathing. And the intent is to create a very mild amount of air hunger, which is that desire to breathe. Or you do an exercise that requires you to reduce your breathing to a much slower rate Mm -hmm. so that you can start to elicit that air hunger response, which is your CO2 becoming elevated. A simple uh, way to think about that is if you did like box breathing, where I told you to inhale for four seconds, hold for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, hold for four seconds you might start to feel a little, just a little twinge of air hunger 
because you're now following this pattern of breathing and it could get a little bit challenging for you. If four seconds isn't difficult, you might try seven and then it probably will get difficult. That's the type of breathing work that I'm talking about. And that is extremely good for increasing fuel capacity in the moment. So I might have somebody do a few sets of air hunger walking or air hunger squats before doing some of their high payoff drills, then have them repeat the air hunger work again. And I teach people how to kind of mix it right in. And that's just a really good way to support the person with fuel, sometimes in combination with say, hey, that glass of orange juice or whatever you have. So that now your brain, like you were saying, now your brain feels safe about what you're doing. It has the in the moment fuel capacity. And what I see as the coach is not only better performance, but more trustworthy information that we're getting from the assessments in the moment as well. Yeah, we're removing the fuel variable right. from the equation at least a little bit. At yeah. least a little bit. And, and those same people usually have to work on their fuel outside of the training session too. Like you mm -hmm. may have to pick up better nutrition habits or potentially utilize that same strategy throughout the day. Um, we've got a really cool drill that we teach. It seems so weird, right? It all seems <laughs> weird. It's called bag breathing. and Bag breathing is when you take a bag and you put it over your mouth and your nose and you just breathe very slowly and relaxed into the bag. Generally, nasal breathing is what I tell people to do with that. And what's happening is you are rebreathing some of your own CO2. This is something that I often use in session with people or teach them how to do on their own. Of course, I assess it and reassess to make sure it is the right drill for them. Mm -hmm. It is generally high payoff for a person who needs it. I mean, I'm going to say 90% of the time, but I have had a couple experiences where it wasn't the right drill, but um, it is so high payoff at so many other times because you're, you're increasing the person's CO2, giving them a better balance of gases, right? And that helps uh, with blood circulation. So bag breathing, like maybe breathing into the bag for 30 seconds, 45 seconds, that's all it will take because what happens is you start to get air hungry mm -hmm. and then you remove the bag and you recover your breathing very calmly through your nose. It's, uh, it's wild. I mean, I have had so many experiences where pain has gone from like a high level to basically nothing just from a single set of bag breathing from increasing CO2 because their brain was in such need of fuel that um, the increase in CO2 was like, your brain was like, yes, thank you. Like I needed this. And then all of a sudden the pain output reduced. I've had wild experiences with bag breathing, but um, again, it has to be assessed. Yeah. I'm over here shaking my head. Like I, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, totally. It's one of the weirder ones for people at first. And I've had a lot of athletes that have become so fond of that, that they will incorporate bag breathing, like multiple bouts into their recovery programs and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's usually where I have them do it. So they're doing their mobility, they're doing their nerve glides, their other, you know, their diaphragm stretches and uh, potentially two, three bouts of bag breathing as well. 
to help increase CO2. What's um, counterintuitive to me is that more CO2 leads to better circulation. You know, right. It, in in my mind, it's like, why don't you give someone an oxygen tank? Yes. So that they can just get all the good stuff. And, right. Right. It, so. <laughs> yeah. And that and that comes down like the physiology of it, and it's deep, but it basically the the it's about binding to the CO two, mm-hmm. right? And and the CO two being uh, what delivers you know the oxygen, and and so if you can rebalance the gases there so that you have better exchange of them, then you can create some really profound results in people mainly because their circulation is improving. Man, I love I love these conversations because there's so many rabbit holes that I want to go oh, down. Oh yeah. <laughs> um but to kind of bring it back to the theme, do you have or have you like imagined a flow chart or like a decision tree uh for self-assessment because I'm sort of seeing seeing it form in my mind where it's like you you start by trying some you know your 70% drills that you think hey these might be useful for the issue that I'm targeting you try yeah. those you figure out what's high payoff you put that in a in your toolbox you take the stuff that's threatening and you set it aside for now yep and you know then you apply it and you apply it and you assess and as time passes, things may start to change. And then if they change, you determine whether you need to add load or speed or check your dosage. Is this the minimal effective dose? Dude, yeah, you're, you've got it, man. Um, love it. So yeah, I, I actually, I have a flow chart and you know I could make multiple flow charts and, and I have one that you made me think of. It's, it's something that I teach in our advanced course called the neuro dojo where we get a little bit deeper into these you know neurocentric types of uh training methods and and so the one that you described where the flow chart brings you to a point of okay what's next do we add load do we regress mm-hmm. i talk a lot about that to our participants in that course and the other part that you you discussed at the beginning is exactly what i teach inside our free mobility challenges So inside our free mobility challenges, I go through all this education to get people very equipped with understanding how to use the assessment process for themselves. And the idea is that they're learning how to build that toolbox. And, And we stop that for them at a point where they we want the goal is to get them to understand how to identify those high payoff drills, but also the threatening ones. Mm-hmm. And then it stops there. And then inside our community, our membership, I unpack that even more for people, um, especially how, how to blend it with our, our strength training program and how to uh, use that philosophy with our actual mobility program. But then it goes deeper once we get to the neuro dojo yeah. and we start talking about like other types of uh, stimuli that we can add to the drills, you know, what are the options for adding complexity? Because it's not just resistance. It's not just mm-hmm. changing the speed. There's there's other things that we can do too, bringing in other sensory systems into the mix so that now you're combining different things to create an even stronger stimulus. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all all of that, you know, the way that you were just describing it is great. And those flow charts are essentially what's what's in my mind as I'm taking people through that. 
Yeah. And I don't imagine, you know, at least especially not me, but everybody will will take this and then say, you know, I've gotten to a level where I've mastered this and can apply any stimulus to, to you know, I, I yep. don't think that's the end goal, but right. getting people familiar with the process, with understanding the tools and starting to apply those in their life. I think yeah. this is super helpful to give kind of an overview of what what you need to be thinking about in terms of self-assessment. Totally. Totally. Awesome. Is there anything that we left on the table that that you feel a burning desire to Yeah, mention? actually, I just remembered. <laughs> I just remembered that I wanted to mention this today. Thankfully, I, I remember because the last time I meant to mention it too and, and did not. Um, I wanted to give people a little bit clearer idea of what is actually happening with the assessment outcome when you get better or you mm -hmm. get worse. Because when you first get into this, it's very exciting, right? You're, you're marking change, your movement improves, your pain becomes less, or you're slightly confused but intrigued because you regress. The range of motion that you had a moment ago, you don't have anymore. Mm -hmm. So then the people's question is, all right, once the smoke has cleared and I can, I'm starting to feel comfortable and confident in the outcome that there is change, everyone wants to know what the heck is actually happening when, say, I go from only being able to bend over and, you know, get my fingertips to my mid shin mm -hmm. versus I do a drill and now all of a sudden my palms are on the floor. Right. And that can happen absolutely like instantly. When I say instantly, I mean a few reps of a drill can bring you from I can't come close to touching my toes to boom, my palms are on the floor. It happens all the time. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's 100% permanent for a person. That's a different conversation that we have to hit eventually because the second question everyone asks is how can I help the result last longer? right? Because it's not, we're not saying it's permanent, right? It's your in the moment change. It's the in the moment uh, output. I, I have had bizarre experiences, Tony, where it has been permanent and I just can't explain it. Yeah. I just, I don't know what happened in their brain. I just, it's, uh, you know, I, probably five times in my career now, we've done a drill, one rep to three reps and an ongoing uh, limitation or pain just disappeared and it never came back. I don't know how it happened. Um, I wish I did. It's not, <laughs> it's not common. It's not common. Right. So um, what is actually happening when uh, your range of motion improves or regresses? And, and that really is summed up by saying those changes are changes in your muscle tone, right? So the resting tone that you have, or, you know, the tone during like an active movement. And it's because you've offered your brain a stimulus, okay? You've, you've activated your brain. And if it's a good stimulus, what you will often see is good, positive changes in range of motion, right? The tone has changed in your muscles. And again, it's not permanent, but it's what has happened in the moment because your brain is now granting you better movement. And when you say that, yeah. you don't mean like toned arms, like they would talk about. In yeah. A, so in I don't mean like, article. yeah, I don't mean like stereotypical, like, you know, what you see in like fitness infomercials, you know, like 
Mm-hmm. Tone the arms, tone the thighs, right? <laughs> I actually mean like, uh, thank you for pointing that out. I actually mean like neurologic information to the tissues, mm-hmm. right? So the the information, um, you know, from your brain to body has changed and that has an outcome on your tissues, on your muscles. And so I'm not saying like one moment you don't have a six pack. And then the next moment, because your <laughs> muscle tone is better, now you have a six pack. Um, I'm saying that neurologically there has been change and that change has resulted in changes in muscle tone, which is like information to the muscle. And your muscles are basically taking orders from the areas of your brain that they get commands from. And so your muscles are basically saying, all right, thanks for that input. Um, you know, now we're going to grant you this movement and, you know, or this amount of pain. So when that's happening, you do an exercise, you know, that provides your brain the input, right? Then there's a decision-making process. Your brain says, all right, what do I do with this input? And then eventually there's an output and the output is the movement that we're testing. Mm-hmm. If it's better, you have seen an improvement in tone, right? And if you regress, right? If the exercise is threatening, now you've seen a uh, reduced range of motion or mobility or even increases in pain. And generally what's happening there is because of the elevated threat levels, you're just building more tension in your body. And again, that can, that is essentially a change in the tone of your tissues as well. Yeah. They're, they're becoming more rigid. They're, yes. they're keeping you from moving. Yeah. You got it. You got it. That's an important takeaway to understand that there actually is a real change happening in the moment. The question is, if you want that change to now last longer, because it's different for everybody, you know, it might last just in session or during the the time that you're practicing. Or if you have actually have a positional goal, like let's say you're actually trying to learn how to touch your toes. um, Now we have to start utilizing that window that you've created of change. And we have to now load your body at those new ranges of motion to teach your brain what is possible. So that now your brain can say, oh, okay, I'm learning something now in this new range of motion. Perhaps I should dedicate the energy resources to keeping it. Mm-hmm. And that now starts to kind of overlap with those I guess I'll call it the progressive overload principles that you hear a lot, like in the strength and conditioning world, where now we have to, we have to provide the training stimulus. We have to make sure that you're consistent enough with it, right? Hit the minimal effective dose, but we have to do it consistently over time to create adaptation so that you can start to own those new ranges of motion. That's a whole episode. (laughs) Yeah. 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 In a nutshell, you want your body to believe like, hey, we need to be able to do this on a regular basis. So, yep. Okay. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, I should say when we use the assessment process, this range of motion testing, you know, it, globally, what it is, is it's a global way to ask your brain and nervous system, how do you feel about this exercise that we're doing? So in that sense, the range of motion and how much it sticks and stays around doesn't matter. You're just you're just checking in. Hey, better, same or worse. Mm-hmm. But then 
the other way to use it is if you're actually working on positional goals, then mm -hmm. I'll tell people, hey, if you have a positional goal, if you want to learn how to do a split, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, you know, I hear that a lot that people want to learn splits and stuff. Or it's something simple, right? You haven't been able to reach up over your head um, and grab a cup out of the cupboard because of shoulder pain and range of motion limitation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we actually want to use that movement as the assessment as well. And now we are interested in getting those results to stick over time. Yeah. Yeah. More of a long-term perspective. Yep. Exactly. Awesome. All right. That's it, Tony. I hope that everybody enjoyed this talking about the nervous system and the brain gets me excited. Um, at this point, if you've been listening, hopefully you're really starting to put it all together. And actually, I recently just heard from somebody that reached out to us, Tony, um, about uh, how they've listened to every episode. And for the nice. first, yeah, for the first time, they are starting to get results in terms of their back pain. And they're one of those people that has uh, said they've tried everything. And so just understanding these fundamental concepts and starting to apply the assessment process has been really, really great for them. So I loved hearing that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So really, really glad to hear that. And if you guys are uh, having success, please reach out and let us know about it. So that's it. If you want to learn more, please follow the podcast, check out the website and the dojo and come along for the ride. I promise you'll learn valuable lessons and build a tool set that will help you keep training pain-free for years to come. Thanks again for listening.